You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com
special night with such a special, special guest. Um, sorry about that. Good evening again, one more time, and welcome to Morph Mom Moments. What a special, special night with a special, special guest. Yes, I did just say that, but I'm repeating it one more time. Um, very exciting. We're in a new studio tonight, so everything's sort of new. But what's so fascinating is we have such an amazing Morph Mom on tonight who brings it all back home again. I'm sitting here with Dr. Yael Mandel Pertnoy, who is the founder and CEO of Cardia Sciences. It's a new company involved with developing cutting-edge technology to improve the treatment and quality of life with AFib patients. Now, I would say atrial fibrillation, but I think it was better off saying AFib. <laughs> no, pronunciation most, wise. most of, uh, most of uh, people don't know AF- what AFib <laughs> is, so let's keep it. We can, we can call it AFib, but like it stands for atrial fibrillation, which is the most common cardiac arrhythmia. I was just worried how I would mutilate the pronunciation of both words. Um, Yael is one of the most amazing women I have ever met. And I'm just so thrilled. That's a thrilled. big statement. <laughs> well, I've got to tell you, it's true. And I'm thrilled and honored to have you here tonight. For those of you out there tonight, again, it's Morph Mom Moments. Um, if you'd like to visit the site, it's morphmom, M-O-R-P-H-M-O-M.com. And you'll be able to see about all the radio shows that we have and the events going on. And you'll actually be able to re-listen to our show tonight as it shows our iTunes podcast link um, from the radio show tonight. Uh I also want to announce one very quick thing. On June 26th, this is a big deal because it's the very first one, Morph Mom presents the very first Hear Her uh, non-conference conference is what we're calling it. I love this name. And I'm so excited that Yael is going to be part of this conference. Every hour on the hour on the day of June 26th in New York City, we're going to have two panels, completely different topics. And the point is that everyone will feel included. There's a topic for everyone and we're... No one is a, a spectator. You will all be participants. We're really, really excited about the date. So I encourage you to go to the website to check out the information, to sign to sign on, to, to join us. And like I said, Yael will be there. So once you hear her speak tonight, I am sure you're all going to want to sign up. So that is what is most exciting. It is very exciting. But, um, and also, thank you for having me tonight. This is very um very privileged to talk about science and to be here and to share my story. So thank you. Oh, it is 100% my privilege to have you here. Are you kidding me? So, uh, yeah, let's let's begin with, so uh, as we've said, you are the CEO and founder of this major scientific technolo- technological company. But let's start from the beginning and how this sort of all began and how you ever became involved in what you're doing right now. Sure. So, um, hi, everyone. Good evening. <laughs> uh, my name is Yael. I'm uh, the founder and CEO of Cordea Sciences. Uh, I moved five years ago from Israel, so please excuse me for my Israeli accent and if I'm butchering a word or two. Um, I moved five years ago from Israel to pursue a PhD program in clinical research in Mount Sinai, a school of medicine in New York. And prior to that, I lived my entire life in Israel. I did my master's in cardiac physiology and biophysics and undergrad in emergency medicine. And prior to that academic career, I was paramedic of the special forces for three and a half years in the Israeli Defense Forces. We were just talking about this prior to the show tonight, and I was fascinated. And if you could explain a little bit about this. So you, at what age, you were actually born in the United States. Yes. And then you moved to Israel. Yes. So what year, how old were you when that happened? So I was actually born in Madison, Wisconsin. 
and my family moved back to Israel when I was three years old. So my uh, older sister, Maya, can start first grade in Israel. So that was the logic to move back. Um, and ever since then, I uh, grew up there. Um, and yes, it's been quite a, quite a journey. And uh, I don't know how many of you know this, but uh, army service is mandatory in Israel, both for females and males. Uh, once they finish high school, everyone goes to the army. Everyone. Um, usually uh, females for two years and male for a minimum of three years. But again, based on the duty that they're assigned to, the job that they're assigned to, uh, it might be longer. Just uh, for example, I'm taking my case. Um, I was a paramedic of the special forces for three and a half years. And that required, you know, the extension because of the, of, of the uh, importance of the job. What dictates which um, area you're going to be assigned to? Or is there any... So um, during 11th grade and 12th grade of high school, uh, you're undergoing major psychological tests and um, physical tests that determine you if you can go to the special forces, to intelligence, to like assign you. So, yes. If you have a preference, can you speak up and say, I prefer to go to this division as opposed to that division? Technically, no. But you like after all the psychological tests and, and the physical tests and all of that, um, you get like uh, in the mail. And this is like a very aha moment for every Israeli teenager. Uh, you get a letter that you get to pick one out of three jobs that they assign you, basically. Um, and then... That's it. It's going to be one out of those three. But you do get to pick out of the three. Yes. Yes. They, they, they consider what, you're, what you want to be. At the end, it's all about the army needs, right? But they do take into consideration what you want to. So, for example, I was actually, um, I was actually in training for, um, to be a pilot. Yeah, I didn't have glasses back then. <laughs> That's all the academic career. <laughs> Yeah, so I actually was um, on that course, and also I was also, um, um, you know, undergoing the test uh, to be paramedic. And then at the end, I got to choose which one do I want to, which one do I want to do, because I passed both. And I, act, I was like, huh, I don't, really don't want to be a pilot. I just wanted to see that I can actually, you know, <laughs> pass the test. <laughs> Because those are like the smart ass. <laughs> Sorry for my language. Um, and uh, I passed the uh, the test for to be a paramedic. And I was like, let's see, because that would be the first, you know, dipping my toe in the water to see if I like the medical field. And I fell in love with it. So, so it all started back then. As far as the pilot portion of it, was mm -hmm. that something you'd ever showed interest in? Or through your psychological testing, it sort of said pilot versus... Exactly. Because paramedic. I was... Some of my psychometric psychological tests show that I'm going to be good at both. And this is why, you know, I got to pick either one. So back then, I guess this began sort of showing your interest in science and down the road what you're doing Yes. Now, which is amazing. Um, so you sign on. You say, okay, this is what I choose. So what happens then? And then, so once you get recruited to the Army, you undergo, as a paramedic, you undergo a very intensive course of 14 months uh, where they basically teach you everything from A to Z about uh, being a paramedic in the Army, which means not a civilian paramedic. 
means treating uh, patients under fire or, you know, soldiers under fire, like very, very uh, stressful situations. And I think the people, it was very funny because I remember I, call, I called my mom probably like after a week there and I said to her, you're not going to believe it. This is like a clones of me. <laughs> Like, our personalities were the same, really. Like, they picked among the entire, you know, age group. They picked the 30 people in our cohort were, like, had exactly the same personality. And I was like, this is so weird. (laughs) (laughs) It's so weird how they could get the personality to actually match the profession, I guess. I know. And I'll I'll tell you uh, uh, another thing that is very funny. So, I met my husband through my older sister, Maya. She was a, um, a commander in the intelligence uh, forces. And he was a commander in the intelligence forces as well. And they, you put them together and they're like, again, they're identical. <laughs> like the personalities are just like, this is disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> so this is how I met my husband. But like, again, you know, they, they find your personality through psychometric tests and psychological tests and they just assign you to whatever you're going to be good at. When you are assigned to that position, and let's say it's not working or you're very unhappy, is there a way to ever say, could I be transferred to something else? Or is it sort of set in stone the next two years, three years, this is it, this is what you're doing? Well, nothing is set in stone, right? If you're going to be miserable, nobody wants you to be like, to do a Right, not a great job. Exactly. Um, But it's hard to transfer. It is hard. It's a challenge. But... You know, challenges are made are uh, made to overcome them. Right, right, <laughs> right. Oh, so you're 18 years old. Yes, and you get put on. I actually, I was 17 years old when I was recruited because I skipped grade. Yeah. Okay, so now you're even smarter yes. than no, I can even imagine right now. I skipped grade. <laughs> Hold on. My parents has to because the 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 um the age limit or like it's 18 in Israel so it's not 21 like it's here okay so before before 18 you're not an adult above 18 you are an adult technically in Israel so my parents actually had to sign like like a hundred forms you know saying that they actually want me to go to the army you know that they're allowing the army to take me (laughs) yeah because I was underage but to the army so upon graduation, yeah. everybody goes. Everybody goes. Is it like sort of, that's like immediately? You immediately. Just- that's it. That's it. This is like the next thing. And you know what? I think it's amazing because in, in, in some way, not in some way, this experience shape, shape who you are. Really. A hundred percent. It shapes who you are. The things that you're going through, the people that you meet, the people that you're undergoing like very uh, intensive training with. Those are going to be the best friends forever. And you just mature in a night because you get an M16, a rifle, and all of a sudden you have a weapon in your hand and you need to watch, you know, your friend's back and he needs to watch yours. So it's within a night you're like you're an adult. Everything that was important in high school doesn't right. exist anymore. Like, so these are eighteen-year-olds from all over Israel who all are brought over. in. So yeah. it's not like you're walking into a group that you know. No, automatically, no. Like you walk into no, and that's the beauty of it because they put together everyone, everyone from across the country. So you get to meet people from different socioeconomic status. You get to you get to meet people from different background, different ethnicities, because Israel is very um, heterogenic. 
um, in that aspect. So you get to meet people that otherwise you would never meet because you live in a neighborhood and those are your friends and those are the people that you grow up with. And, you know, that's, that's, the, that's your group, right? And then you go to the army and it's just like new, you're dealing the, the cards from scratch, you know, like you get a new hand. That's it. So at 17, as yeah. opposed to 18, yeah. how old everybody else was, you started the training. Yes. And then after 14 months of training, you're in there. Yes. I was a paramedic um, and I was a stationed in, uh, outside of Israel, um, beyond the borders. Um, and I was stationed uh, there as a paramedic of the special forces. And that was um, an amazing experience. An amazing um, the highest high, the lowest lows, really. You realize that you are probably the only female in a radius of like 100 kilometers, <laughs> really. And um, so, you know, beyond enemy lines, um, there are not a lot of female soldiers. Um, so the people that go there, the females that go there are very, they're handpicked for their jobs. Um, and you need to understand the situation very quickly and you need to adjust very quickly. And it's inspiring. It's challenging at the same time. And again, you turn into an adult in the night. And how many years, how long were you there? So you started 17. What age did you leave? Yeah, so probably around 18 and a half, I was like, I was uh, approved or as a paramedic. And then I was stationed in the in the special uh, forces. And I left, I got out of there about 21. I was 21 years old. I went to Thailand for two weeks. And I came back. My parents picked me up at the airport and drove me to the college town because I started college like day after. Really, like undergrad. <laughs> is that typical? So when, when kids come out at 21, 22, I guess, having served, is that typical? You get a couple weeks and you're, you're in? So no, that's typical for me because, <laughs> <laughs> because I, I, I'm just like, I, I have needles in my butt. That's the, that's the, the sentence. Um, but usually it's, so the beauty about it is that by the time you go to college in Israel, You've experienced a lot. So you've experienced the army service. And then usually people take, you know, maybe six months to work and save money. And then they go on a long trip, backpacking trip, trip that actually expose you to everything that it's out there. So either South America or, you know, uh, the east side of the world. Um, so, yeah, that, that's the norm in Israel. So did you have to apply to the university while you were in service? Like, yes. How does that work? So I applied, like, I knew when I'm going to, you know, finish the service, and I knew exactly what um, college I want to go to, university I wanted to go to, and program I wanted to get in. And um, I applied, and I did everything that I need to do, you know, during the late stage of the army service, um, whatever needs to get done. It's not like it's not like in the States that you need a year and a half advance. No, it's like a few months in advance. That's it. We talk we talked about the differences. Tuition wise. Tuition wise. So this is something we discussed earlier. So you explain the now I'm gonna have two kids in college next year. I am so jealous of this. But would you explain sort of the tuition the way they it's handled in Israel? So um 
the tuition in Israel is a part of it sponsored by the government and universities the tuition for years between 25 to 30 yeah I know shocking uh, just <laughs> like health care that is sponsored by the government <laughs> um, I was uh, lucky because um, actually soldiers that serve as combat soldiers they get their undergrad paid by the government as a appreciation sort of appreciation for their service so my parents only helped me with you know living expenses and stuff like this but not the education itself and then I did the undergrad in emergency medicine I finished uh, um, first in class I don't know what the term is in English. A valedictorian? Uh, yes, exactly. I am not surprised. Yeah, so, <laughs> sorry. I'm like uh, blanking on the word. And uh, because of that, I got a scholarship. Um, this was like a, almost like a junction for me because I needed to decide if I want to go to med school or I wanted to go to research. And back then, I decided that I really... So, again, not to undermine anyone. Uh, I decided that being a physician is not for me. I'm the kind of person that think way beyond uh, the box. So like outside of the box. And I don't like uh, to be shaped or formed, you know, in, in a certain way. And being a paramedic and being a physician, in some way, you follow protocols at the end. You follow treatment protocols. And it's the same being paramedic or being a physician. And I had that experience for three and a half years. And I said, that's nice. I got to save lives. I was... I was really good at it, but let's see if I can, you know, push myself to a limit. Let's see if I can explore um, the medical field from another angle. And this is why I decided to go to um, master's in cardiac physiology and biophysics, but from a basic science experience. And I, I understand you're not allowed to <laughs> share many of the details about what went on, but were there any experiences during that time, during combat or on the field that really influenced the direction you were going to go in? Like, or, or any, is there a certain experience you had with maybe one patient or one soldier that you thought, this is why I need to go to do what I, this is why I need to get beyond this. I need to do the research. I need to expand what's out there. So I think that, you know, my army service and, and being a civil paramedic, because that was my student job. <sighs> Um, it's just so crazy that at 18 years old, you were out there on the field. Yeah, I know. So I think that it helped me um, understand that what I love about the fields that I love are cardiology and trauma. And funny enough, when I was actually in the undergrad, I had an amazing course, um, Pathophysiology of Trauma, uh, that was taught by an like, amazing professor and at the end of the course after the exam like he was handing out the you know the exams with the scores and all of that and we you know that was the last class of the semester and everyone was laughing there was no like professor student thing anymore he was like sitting among us and we chatted and he looked at me and he's like Mandel you are not to treat alive people either pathology or trauma surgeon for you <laughs> did he know your background no did you tell him your background? Yeah, <laughs> like, Wait I left, a minute. <laughs> yeah, I left so hard because I realized through that process that I am a very impatient person for good and bad. Um, and I really want to see how I can affect science and the medical field. And this is why I actually went into that direction. Did you see, now you went into the heart direction. Yes. 
um, and I know we're going to get into this as well, but when you were out on the field, were there many heart? I mean, did you ever? There were. So it wasn't just, it wasn't just um, battle wounds that you had to deal with. It's traumatic part. That's what I was curious about. Like what, I I guess, what was it you saw the most out there and that in turn influenced? So obviously in the army, it's trauma. But as a civil paramedic, mostly cardiac cases. Yeah, mostly. So your your instructor says to you, um, this is not your field. You say, wait a minute. Yes, it is. <laughs> so tell us about that. So how do you take this misdirection, uh, clearly, <laughs> from this instructor and turn it around? Um, I had a few experiences in my life where someone told me, hell no. And I said, hell yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Thank you for being here on Morph Mom for just saying that tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just a personality thing. Uh, a no is just a challenge for me. So, I mean, again, at the end, it's all about perspective. And that's something that I learned from home. And that's something that my parents really rooted in, in me and my siblings. Um, it's all about perspective at the end and your attitude, how you take things. So one sentence like this can break someone. For me... It's like a challenge, almost like, bring it on. Let's see that, (laughs) you know? Um, And I decided I really wanted to go into cardiac research for my master's to see um, how I can influence that. And I didn't mean to interrupt, but at this point, you're still in Israel. (laughs) Still in Israel. Still in Israel. Okay. Yes, still in Israel. Um, So I applied to the best um, basic science institute in Israel, the Technion. Um, the, the Institute for Technology, basically. And I joined, I was so rookie. Like I had no understanding about like, you know, how to even apply, how to, like, do I interview them? They, 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 the professors interview me. Like, how does this work even? How does it work? <laughs> so I just applied to few labs. I heard one from back from one professor, went for an interview. It looked fine. Um, was good so I started there and a month later my dad died I told you about this um, it was very uh, unfortunate um, situation um, he died from sudden cardiac arrest at age of 51 in our backyard and that was a very tragic um, scenario because my brother actually it was summer of 2008 And my brother was representing Israel in the Beijing Olympics. And that happened, like, right a few hours before the opening ceremony. And, um, you know, as a parent, and now I am a parent, right? I have a two and a half years old at home. But as a parent, when you have a child that is gifted in something, like my brother, in swimming, um, all you want to do is help them reach their maximum potential. And... The highest high of every, you know, someone who plays sports and, you know, uh, professional sport is the Olympic Games. You work so hard to get into that, um, to get to to that point. And um, he died a few hours before that happened, that the opening ceremony. And that was very, very tragic loss. Again, age of 51. Um, he did a sudden cardiac arrest on on a, on a ladder and fell like two steps um, and that's it my brother stayed there based on my mom's directions that I adore her 
uh, for giving him the powers to do that because he was 19 or 20 back then. He was tiny. And she said, no, you're staying and you're swimming because that's what your father would have wanted you to. Like, you didn't get to that point in order to get on a plane back to Israel. No. And he stayed there. And he's uh, competing 100 and 200 butterfly, and he broke two national records. And then um, that night they went on the plane, him and my sister, and they came back, and then we did, you know, the burial and the shiva and all of that. So at that time, were you still in in getting your master's? You were sort of mid-master's at that Just point? Just started. You'd like, it happened three weeks after I started. Oh. Really. So... Is that what inspired... So at that point... Yes. And you realized it was cardiac related. Yeah. Is that when your focus really became focused upon... Yes. ...the cardiac yes. world? Yes. I'm like, there's no such thing as, you know, this just happened while I'm working in a cardiac physiology lab. <laughs> so I was like, there's a bigger power than me. <laughs> that knows that I'm going to do a lot of good in the world, you know, if I'll investigate that topic. So having that emotional toll on me and focusing what, you know, what good can come out of it, this is where I focus the energy. Um, it was, you know, during my master's, it was a very, very hard experience for me. I had a horrible professor. I suffered academic abuse. Um, it was really bad. And the thing is that it happens very often in academia and nobody talks about it. And again, that's very unfortunate. And I'm not the kind of person that will shut up about it. So I, I, I talk about this to everyone who's willing to listen. Just like, you know, postpartum and like, you know, depression. Stuff that nobody, it's there, but nobody right. talks about. Right. Um, academic abuse is also very common. Um, and he just put it, uh, his mission in life to make me miserable and for me not to graduate. Now, again, I'm a very persistent person, um, very persistent person. So when I start something and when I commit to something, that's what I'm doing. And even though it felt like moving a mountain, really, because everything was against me, but I said, I don't care. I'm going to finish this. I don't know if some part of it was because my dad knew that I'm starting and, you know, I, I don't know. It's not about disappointing him because he's dead already. You cannot disappoint him. But like it's a, it's a part of it is very emotional. That like I'm going to finish this no matter what. Um, and I did. But I was like hanged out to dry after that. I was so like there was no wind in me. And as you can hear from my tone, I'm a very viable person <laughs> and I'm like very lively and I'm very passionate about what I do. And he just crushed me, really crushed my spirit. And I said, I did a master's that literally in Israel, you cannot do anything with because you're overqualified for an undergrad job, but you're underqualified for a PhD job. So you're like in the middle, you did an awesome master's degree, but you cannot use it. So why? And this is where I uh, reached a point that I was, sa I was saying to myself, okay, let's explore options outside of Israel. Because maybe I exhausted the options here. 
Dan, if Israel is a very small country, so let's see if you know there's something out there that I can actually um, do and be good at. And I took a year. I came here, um, took a, you know the MCAT exam, the course, the prep course, all of that. I applied to my husband. He, he's the one that incept the idea of moving uh, to the States. And I had to go a process of like, you know, basically understanding that there is nothing for me else in Israel at this point. And let's explore, you know, options. Um, and I applied to, I, I said, okay, I did. I have clinical experience. I did basic science. But I hated it because I'm not a lab person. Um, let's do clinical research. Again, needles in my butt, in my tush. <laughs> I need to see things that can actually shape medicine and things that can actually help people. And basic science is beautiful and amazing and inspiring, but it will become reality 10, 15 years from now. And I'm not going to wait 10, 15 <laughs> years from now. So um, we started to explore options. And I saw back then, it, that was 2011. And I saw that there are three, progr- three programs in the States um, that had clinical research PhD program. It was very, very new. One of them was in New York City, in Mount Sinai, the graduate school. And the two other were in like nowhere. And I said to my husband, if we're going to move, we're only going to move to New York because if I'm going to be lonely and miserable, at least I'll be a lo- lonely and miserable in New York City and not in like Nebraska or whatever. I don't know. So I have a question. Was that cardiac related or no? It was just a general PhD program that... General PhD in clinical research, but you come with your topic. So oh, I okay. knew... So this one, you knew you could come in with the cardiac background exactly. and pursue that. Exactly. But it was... The toll was on me to find the right mentors, the right mentorship, all of that. But I, you know, just like um, anything else, you know, I just had confidence in myself. And with so much uncertainty, I'm like, we're going to make this work. I have no idea how, but we will make it work. Um, so I applied only to the... Um, PhD program at Mount Sinai to the graduate school, to the clinical research track. And, you know, everything here is like a year in advance. And I'm like, we don't live in those time scales. Like in Israel, everything (laughs) is like so quick and fast. And um, fast forward a few months uh, after, my husband and I were coming back from a trip from Mexico. So we were still living in Israel. We're going to Mexico we had to stop for three nights in uh, New York, two nights, three days in New York City. And we arrive here, we get into a coffee shop. I, you know, hooked up to the Wi-Fi in the, co- in the coffee shop with my iPhone 1. <laughs> <laughs> and I get an email from the graduate school, very nice email, telling me that I was not accepted. Like, we're so, we're, thank you for applying, yada, 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 you know, there were amazing candidates, better than you, and therefore, we hope, uh, you know, this will not discourage you from pursuing your, (laughs) anyway, I threw a tantrum, (laughs) really, I'm telling you, my daughter can learn from me, and I have two and a half years old, that's challenging, (laughs) I threw myself a pity party, like you have not seen, 
I cried and we went to drink and my <laughs> husband called my mom. He's like, how do I make it stop? And she's like, shopping therapy. Just take her to Saks Fifth Avenue or Bloomingdale's or whatever is closer. Shopping therapy. No, this was like, listen, I put all my eggs in one basket. Everything. And that basket just <laughs> crashed with all the eggs in it. And... We came to the hotel. My eyes are so like swollen and puffy from <laughs> crying. And I'm like, listen, I have, I had no plan B, no plan B, no contingency plans, nothing. And you know, it's the time that you were like, I'm screwed. What now? What now? What's the next step? And my sister back then, my older sister, um, she lived here in the city because she was, uh, doing the Columbia MBA program. And I called her, and we are 180 degrees personality-wise, me and my sister. I'm an extrovert. She's an introvert. Like, I, you can tell everything on my face. Like, I hate you. I love you. I, you know, everything. She's like, poker face, no expressions. So I call her, and I'm like, I'm telling her the entire story that I didn't get accepted. And she's like, okay. And I'm like, what do you mean, okay? Like, my whole job, you know, my world just collapsed. There's no future for me. You know, everything is so drama, drama, drama. She's like, so that's what you're going to do. You're going to write an email to the program director and the program administrator that, you know, thank you for even considering me for the, you know, for the program. If you, you know, by accident, you're here. By coincidence, you're here in New York City. If you can just, you know, set up a quick meeting with the program director just to understand uh, what you can do better for next year application. And I'm like, what do you mean next year application? <laughs> Who wants to go there? They don't want me. I don't want them. Like, you know, really, I'm telling you, throwing a tantrum, really, like a two years old, like a toddler. And she was like, Yale, shut up. <laughs> That's what you're going to do. I'm like, did they, did they teach you this? And like, this is what you're paying like 150K in the <laughs> MBA program to know how to write an email. Like, you know, and she's like, yeah, enough with the pity party. Like, this is, you know, enough. Get your shit together. Right. Sorry for my language. Again. No, please. Um, and that's what I did because she was like really yelling at me. I did that. And I said, we're here for two like two more days, you know, if we can set up something so I can wow you. Exactly. No, I so I can, you know, be a better applicant for next year. And, you know, I was like vomiting from the inside <laughs> while writing this email because in Israel, we don't do this, you know. Uh, but whatever, in America, right? Play the game. So I wrote this. Anyway, they set up a meeting for me for the day of our flight. So our flight, again, we were here only for like two and a half days. Our flight was at 7 p.m. I had a meeting with the program director for like five minutes at 9 a.m. Fine. So I said, we're going to go there. I'm going to ask her whatever I need to ask, whatever Maya, you know, gave me a script of what I need to do for next year application. And then we're going to keep on with the shopping therapy. And my <laughs> husband was like, deal, done. Let's just get this over with. So we're sitting there, 9, 9.30, 10, 10 30, the, the administrative assistant comes out to us and she's like, I'm so sorry, she's treating patients. Well, you know, she's a brand name professor, you know, she's treating um, cancer patients. Like, what am I gonna, I'm gonna be angry at her, but I was pissed, right? Because, like, she was <laughs> late, really, really late. 
she came to her office at 2 p.m. And by that time, I was, so I'm hot-minded. You probably can tell. Um, <laughs> I was furious, really. I was like, like smoke coming out of my ears because I'm like, you are wasting my shopping therapy time. This is like, unforgivable. Like, I'm not going to forgive you ever. And I walk, this is like, I'm telling myself, you know, this is my discussion with myself. So I go there and she looks at me and she's like, very grumpy um, with an angry face. You're like, what do you want from me? So she sits down in her, in her chair and I'm in my chair. You know, there's a table between us and I had a script. I walked in with the script that Maya gave me, right? (laughs) Like why did and really what happened in that room terrified even me. Like I, I got, I was terrified of myself because I was like (laughs) really out of nowhere. I gave her the pitch of my life. Five minutes, I talked. I didn't even take a breather. Like, I talked so fast, so strong. And I was like, you are making the biggest mistake of, my, of your life not taking me into this program. And this is why. A, you know, A, B, C. And I just talked so fast. And I was like, it was a mix of like, you know, frustration and furious and angry and disappointed and upset and everything. Really, five minutes pitch of my life. It was like an outer body experience because I finished <laughs> that and I was like, in my head, what just happened here? You know, I might get a little bit off script. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and she, you know, sits back in her in her chair, putting her arms like, you know, across her chest. And she's like, are you done? And I'm like, yes. She's like, L-. and then she looked at me for a minute. I felt that I have like, you know, that I'm choking, <laughs> really. But a minute, she looked at me. She stared at me like, I, I didn't even know how to interpret that. Like, I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll keep it, keep it, keep it chill, keep it calm, like everything. Because I was like going hysterical from the inside. <laughs> I was like, what, what's going on? Say something bad, good, just say something. Um, and then she's like, you know what? You, you've convinced me. But out of courtesy to the program director, I have to speak to them. We'll get back to you in a week. And then she shook my hand and I just left, went down the elevators. Alone, my husband saw me there and I was like pale as a ghost. And he's like, he catches me and he's like, and he shakes me and he's like, what happened? What happened? What happened? Did you hit her? Did she hurt you? (laughs) What happened? Just tell me what happened. And I'm like, I think I'm in. He's like, what do you mean in? What do you mean in? What, like, and he's like, you're in. You're in. We flew back to Israel that night. The email, the acceptance email came back a week after, a few days after. It was a week. It was a, we had yeah. to wait that whole week. Um, a few days after, like Ugh. five days, something like that. But that was the first time the graduate school actually uh, flipped a decision acceptance or uh, not accept a rejection letter um, and uh, we moved three months after that was January 2012 we moved in May uh, four months we moved then and then in August I started the PhD program it's, that it's year such a good start. and we talked about this earlier and how I thought for all you morph moms out there I think this is such an invaluable lesson for for us but also our kids that it's not always a closed door. It's not always a no. No, exactly. And you know, something you not. know in your heart, something needs to be yours. Something is meant to be yours. So I got the no, I got the rejection letter and I said, 
Hell no. This is going to be a yes. So what's yours is yours at the end. And, you know, most of the people will get discouraged. Um, And I understand because I got discouraged. But I think the most important lesson is to put this, um, to to time it, to give yourself an hour and a day for a pity party. Okay? But when that time frame ends, that's it. You get up, you clean your knees, and you pivot. And you redefine yourself. And you reinvent yourself in order for you to climb that mountain because that's what you wanted. And we had talked about this earlier, too. We were saying that, you know, in life today, everything is perfect. Everything is social media. You look, look at Instagram. And you look at Facebook. And you look at anything. It's perfect. Everything is great. Everything is always wonderful. Everything is exactly as it should be. And it's so disconcerting to see that sometimes. And that's why when we spoke earlier, I said to Yael, please share that story and let people know that things are not always perfect. And you have to work hard for them. And things, doors get shut and you got to find another one. But I think what's so much more motivating in life is that things don't always go your way. And you keep pushing and you keep pushing and you get there. Most of the time they don't It's go a better your- lesson yes, though exactly. than seeing the, the perfect picture all the time because nothing is perfect. It's just so not. I'll, I'll just tell you a story about this. So being part of this PhD program, so the first year and a half were very, very difficult for me. I was very lonely here. You know, no family, no, no uh, support system, right? All my friends, family back in Israel. Um, and I was looking for a mentor. I was desperate for a mentor. And I knew that I'm looking for a mentor in the cardiac field. And all the people, all the cardiologists that I spoke with, so I said to myself, the master experience, not going to happen again. You're interviewing me, I'm interviewing you. Okay, that's uh, two-way. Right, and you said previously, for those who are joining us, that it had been sort of an abusive relationship yes. with going through your master's program. Yes, exactly. And I said, this is a five years PhD program. I'm not going to, like, let's make the best out of it. So I just need to be very careful with whoever I'm going to do it with. So eventually, I was very lucky. Um, I applied for an NIH, National Institute of Health grant. And I got the grant through the Department of Emergency Medicine at Mount Sinai. And I got to be mentored by Professor Lynn Richardson. She's the vice chair of the emergency department. And she is just, she probably one of the person that shaped me the most. Like I put her on the same level of my parents to that extent. Um, she took me under her wing and she made me what I am today. Academic wise, you know, entrepreneurship wise, um, motivating all of that. And she had a very, um, rough path as well as a, as a physician, um, trying to, you know, find her spot. Um, but she took me under her wing as, as well as a few other, um, female mentees, physicians or researchers, PhDs, MDs. And we both, uh, um, we turned this relationship into something that is bigger than everything, really. She taught me that failures, for some reason, got a very negative um, vibe to it, even though we become, become who we are because of our failures. They shape us. So for some reason, it's a negative word, or someone associate negativity with that. But at the end, 
as I said in the beginning, it's all about perspective and it's all about your attitude. And that's something that if you're going to embrace the failures faster, you're going to become much more successful. So she always says, embrace the failures, celebrate the wins. And that's so important because, again, failures is what shape us. All the no's that I'm getting as a new entrepreneur, as a new entrepreneur and, you know, someone that has uh, just started her own company, this shapes me because I'm going back to my desk, back to my drawing board, thinking, pivoting, redefining, and then go back to the battle. So it's actually a very, very positive in my opinion. Do you think, and just like going back to your your history with the Israeli army, with everything, do you think all of this has now played a part in how you're willing to sort of, you're willing to take it on and to keep going? That battle, you're going to fight it. Oh, absolutely. This is a personality thing. And that's like, at 18 is- years, uh, 17 years old, you were put in that situation. Do you think that was almost a pivotal time when you learned sort of the, the battlefield, like what it's like on the battlefield and to keep going and to keep pursuing? Yes. As I said, this is this is definitely a point that shapes you, um, teaches you what you're good at, what you're not good at, um, making you reinvent yourself, especially, you know, when being a paramedic um, of the special unit, uh, special forces in the army, um, you deal with a lot of uh, stressful situations. So you need to adjust very quickly and you learn this about yourself. So that was definitely a very, very crucial moment in my life. At that age, do you see some around you who were not able to adjust as quickly? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And what happens if you're in that situation where maybe you can't handle it? Like, what happens to those kids? I mean, they're 17, 18 years old. Um, So this is why there's all those two years, you know, psychological, psychometric tests, because they don't want to put someone in such a high stress situation that will not be able to tolerate the stress. And, you know, some people just don't. And this is where you end up with PTSDs and and all of that. I mean, United States has an army. United States, you know, fought in Afghanistan and and Iraq. And you have a lot of, of soldiers that come back with PTSDs. Again, they're not, those are very strenuous situations. Like there's nothing out there that teaches you to, deal with that enormous stress so it's either you block it or you learn to deal with it and the faster you learn to deal with it the better for you in my opinion again i'm not saying this for everyone but for no and at 17 years old you had to go through this so now i'm going to fast forward to you've gone through you have your master's you've come to the united states you've fought the fight and you got that phd and you've now created you're the ceo and founder of the most amazing company so this is yeah cardia sciences so tell us about that yes so cardia sciences is uh, basically based on uh, a discovery that they made through their phd program so you know uh, um, new york is very expensive so when we just moved i needed to find a job and i said ego aside overqualified aside i don't care (laughs) i'll just you know all i need is a step in the door to set my foot in the door much easier to move within an organization than to come from the outside. So I just needed a job and all I, you know, care that it will be something related to cardiac because that was my passion, right? So I found a job as a research assistant in the cardiothoracic surgery department, Mount Sinai. And that's a very, very difficult um, department, uh, male dominant, very hard for women to shine there. 
Um, and I got a very, very entry level job, very entry. But I did it and it worked for me because I could study and I could combine and I did the job and, you know, I got the experience. And again, first time, first job in America for me. So I needed the experience. Um, and one morning I was following up on a patient in the morning round in the cardiothoracic ICU. This was a 75 years old uh, female with atrial fibrillation the most common cardiac arrhythmia. And she was in the cardiothoracic ICU because a day before she had a mitral valve surgery, uh, uh, open heart surgery. And she was one of the patients that I recruited the day before for one of the studies that I, you know, that the chair of the department participated in. So we're working with the attending for the morning rounds. It's like 6.30 in the morning. And we're working there and he stops next to my patient and they talk about it with the residents. And then he asks if anyone know what pulse deficit is. No one knew. And he said that this is a physiological phenomena where the heart rate that you see on the EKG doesn't reflect what happens in the periphery. And I was shocked. You know, back then I just finished master's in cardiac physiology and biophysics. Never heard of this before. I was like, what? Two heart rates? Like... <laughs> Doesn't make sense. I approached him later with my Israeli chutzpah. And I said to him, um, can you tell me a bit more about this? And he said, I don't know more. All I know, and back then he was the chair of the uh, cardiothoracic anesthesiology department. He said that from my 15 years of clinical experience, atrial fibrillation patients with large pulse deficit are the one to die on the operating table. And that was his gut feeling. And I said to him, what? Do you have a log? Do you have a diary? Like, that's amazing. I didn't even realize how can that be possible? We have a physiological marker that can actually risk stratify patients that are undergoing surgery. Why are we not using this? And he said to me, I don't have data on it. This is just my gut feeling. But you're a first year PhD student, so prove me I'm wrong. Funny enough, nine months, uh, nine months ago, when we analyzed the data of the study that I'm going to get back to in a second, I called that professor, Professor Gregory Fisher. He's now at Sloan Kettering. Um, and I said to him, so your gut feeling? It's not a gut feeling anymore. It has scientific merit, statistical significant p-value. Um, and that's a big thing in science. So we were able to prove that, that relationship. So, so back then... Um, so back then, uh, I wrote a grant. We put together a study. We recruited patients for the study. We followed up on them. And then based on the results of the study, I, I founded Cardia Sciences. And that's a spin-out out of Mount Sinai. And now we're at a seed um, funding stage. And I am uh, looking for strategic partners and also angel investors. Um, we're raising $1 million. Uh, this will take us all the way to FDA clearance because we all already have a lot of clinical data from patients. I am. I would be very, very happy to be introduced to the right people because, again, that takes introductions. How can they get in touch with you if they're interested in funding or getting involved? So it's going to be on the um, on the uh, website of Morph Mom. Yes, and also um, our website. There's um, a landing page and also where you can put your information. Cardea Sciences. C A R D E A Sciences dot com. One word. Uh, you can find us there. And again, we won some 
major pitch competitions in the last year, national and international. So we got very, very good traction. And I'm really, this is a very exciting time because I'm getting out of the umbrella of the National Institute of Health, uh, ramping up towards the seed investment round and um, lo- really looking forward to what we can do with science and how we can improve patients' life and atrial fibrillation and heart failure patients, which is the next application of the technology that we are developing. I can't thank you enough for coming on tonight. So as everyone has heard, what Yael is doing is so important. It touches all of us. There's no one out there who has not had some experience or some exposure to someone who's... Cardiac patients. Could be cardiac patients. So get on this. Let's get involved. Let's get this FDA approved. Let's get this out there. And let's help all these people. Let's get this fun. Yes. (laughs) Let's let's do this. Yes. Let's do this. And thank you, everyone, for listening tonight. We'll be back next week. More fun moments. And our podcast will be up tomorrow so you can hear all about this again. iTunes podcast, more fun moments. And if you need to get in touch with Yael, go to Cardia Sciences and we can get this going. Thank you all. We'll see you next week. Good night, everyone. Thank you. Good night served honorably in our nation's armed forces and you're looking for a way to continue serving your fellow veterans in your community, then join AMVETS. Each year, AMVETS members volunteer millions of hours at VA healthcare facilities from coast to coast, helping to improve the lives of their fellow veterans through the VA Voluntary Services Program. AMVETS posts and departments also participate in a wide variety of community service projects, ranging from Americanism in our schools to supporting the Special Olympics and Boy Scouts of America. If you no longer wear the uniform today, you can still serve through the AMVETS by joining today at AMVETS.org. Hi, I'm Janice Ian. Do you remember how excited you were at the start of summer every year and how the summer just started to drag on after a few months and you couldn't wait to get back to school, see your old friends, make new friends, get new books and a new locker and a clean slate? Well, you should have been excited about music class, too, because that was a special room where you went to sing, perform with your friends, and learn all kinds of interesting stuff about great composers, instruments, different kinds of music and songs. We remember our music teachers because they were so passionate about helping us learn to love music. They helped to spark a love for listening to notes and voices and rhythms that continues to enrich our lives even today. I bet your kids feel the same way about music class. Ask them and make sure they get involved with music in school and in their lives. A PSA brought to you by MENC, the National Association for Music Education, and the National Anthem Project, the campaign to restore America's voice through music education. Music, part of a sound education. Voted number one jazz cabaret club by New York Magazine, the Metropolitan Room is one of the most critically acclaimed venues in New York City.